is the Cloud Enough Podcast, your launchpad for Amazon Web Services. Welcome to the Cloud Enough Podcast. My name is Andreas. And my name is Michael. We are two brothers and freelancers focusing 100% on AWS. We are doing security reviews of AWS infrastructures, doing bootstrapping of whole uh, infrastructures for our customers. That's what we do day to day. And every other week, uh, we discuss a topic related to AWS in this podcast. Usually, one of us prepares the topic, which is not known to the other one. But this week, then, this is a little bit different. We talk about all the things you need to know about uh, reInvent in Las Vegas, and we condensed it to the top 10 announcements. And so Michael and me, we have both contributed uh, five announcements that we think uh, are important. And on top of that, we also have three interviews with attendees from reInvent in Las Vegas. So this is uh, why this week's podcast is a little bit different. Okay, so our uh, first interview is with Alexander, and he is um, a serverless hero. So let's listen what he has to say, uh, what his favorite announcements are. So what do you think are the most important releases uh, or the highlights of the last couple of days here at reInvent? Hello, Michael. Uh, it's nice to be here on uh, your podcast. Um, so um, this reInvent was actually super interesting. Uh, there was a bunch of new releases and features announced before the reInvent and uh, now on uh, you know as as the reInvent came um, we actually uh, have uh, seen some very interesting announcements in the serverless space so for example uh, I, I could mention like the provisioned uh, concurrency on uh, AWS Lambda which is one of the highlights of this uh, uh, reInvent and also the second one uh, I could say like Something which is really interesting to me is this Amplify data store, which um, is which is really, really, really uh, interesting and a very powerful feature for all AWS customers who are using Amplify. So I'm very glad you recorded some voices from reInvent in Las Vegas, Michael. And the first one from Alexander, I think, uh, hits a very interesting announcement, which is provision concurrency for AWS Lambda. And I want to dive a little bit deeper into what that means. So why is provision concurrency for Lambda important? I think it's because of two um, obstacles that we had when building serverless applications. One of them is cold starts. So by default, AWS Lambda scales on demand, which means whenever Lambda needs to spin up a new executor for um, processing request, it takes something between 100 milliseconds and a second to do so because they need to spin up um, the execution environment, download the source code and everything. So this takes a while. So typically this is not a big issue because it affects only a very small portion of your traffic. So that means it only happens when Lambda needs to spin up new executors, which depending on your workload typically happens not that often. Um, so in most use cases, that's not an issue. But in some use cases, having um, a latency uh, above 100 or 200 milliseconds is not acceptable, even not for a small portion of your traffic. 
And this was uh, always a showstopper for building a serverless application with AWS Lambda. And what AWS announced at reInvent is now provision concurrency. So what we do now is uh, we can provision a specific amount uh, of memory, which also provisions CPU or network, um, that is then um, used for executing, uh, executing our uh, requests for the Lambda function. And actually the infrastructure, the executors are pre-warmed. So they are already running. They are waiting for incoming requests. And as long as you are not using more capacity than you have provisioned, uh, you will not see any cold starts anymore. And also you will not uh, see these um, these cold starts, these latencies um, between 100 and milliseconds and a second anymore. Or let's maybe be more accurate, you will see them very, very seldomly. And so this is, I think, very important. And um, so there's a blog post from AWS that we will link in the show notes um, that actually measures um, these latencies and does a benchmark between Lambda functions with and without provision concurrency. And you can see from there, yeah, that it really helps to reduce or to equal um, the latencies of your Lambda function. Okay, so that, that sounds great, Andreas. And, and this was also one of my uh, top announcements. So can you go a little bit more into the details? Um, so is this really a feature that we can can use? So can you tell us a little bit about uh, the general availability? Is it available in all regions? And what about CloudFormation support? Yes. So the good news, it is, it is general, general available in all regions. And you can also provision it with CloudFormation. So it's really ready to use. Um, so there's there's one another uh, interesting aspect of provision concurrency. And this is, it not, does not only affect uh, your Lambda functions from a technical perspective, but it also affects your AWS bill. Because by provisioning uh, concurrency for your Lambda function, you also get a discount um, of about 15%. And if you have listened to our last episode where we were talking about uh, AWS savings plans, um, this is a very similar concept than we have with um, EC2 instances and Lambda. So we provision um, the infrastructure that we need to use and we are paying for it no matter if we use it or not. But on the other hand, uh, we're getting a discount uh, on the usual on-demand price. So with um, provision concurrency, it's about 50% of the, the on-demand price. So which means um, as long as you keep the utilization of your provision concurrency at about uh, or over 60%, um, it's less, you pay less for running your or your application on, on Lambda than you do with the on-demand pricing. Actually, the funny thing is, <laughs> so if you use this new feature, um, and provision uh, concurrency for your AWS Lambda function, you then are again in the business <laughs> of actually managing um, your infrastructure um, capacity because you then have to make sure that you are um, yeah, provisioned the right amount uh, of capacity all the time. So yeah, again, you're losing some benefits of being serverless. Uh, on the other side, uh, you, need, uh, you get... Um, a small price reduction and also reduce the cold starts. 
Yeah, so one thing that I uh, did not uh, understand probably at the beginning is that if I, for example, reserve, uh, like if, if I provision one concurrency unit and I use more than that, then it still works. So I will pay the on-demand rate and there might be a cold start, but it's not like an upper limit. There's also the concurrency limit that you can set. Um, so this is uh, the way to restrict the number of concurrent functions or execution environments that run. But with provision concurrency, it's it's really only like the minimum that, that you basically provision, but you can always scale above this um, uh, provisioned limit. Yeah, so, so if you, that's true. If you compare it to, to EC2, it's maybe uh, a savings plan. Um, with a reservation capacity reservation so that's more or less what it relates to in in the old world okay andreas so um that's it is this uh all we need to know about uh, provision concurrency or is there anything else to mention no i think that's the the most important aspect and i'm very happy about this announcement because i think it it uh, it allows us to use serverless in more scenarios than it has been before so i'm i'm happy with that Okay, I see. Um, so next announcement, and this was also mentioned by Alexander, um, and this is about the Amplify Data Store, and this is actually one of the announcements that I really like. So what is the Amplify Data Store? Um, so first, Amplify is um, a framework and also tooling from AWS to help us build applications. Um, it works for... Um, browser-based applications, but it also works for iOS and Android-based applications. So with Datastore, we get a uh, capability to... Um, basically, we get an API to access a local data store. We, so we can write data to this data store, we can read it from the data store, and we can also uh, subscribe to changes. So if something is changed in the data store, we can react to that. And... So on the browser side, it is um, implemented on top of IndexedDB. So it's it's stored inside the browser. So if you uh, restart your browser, you will still have access to your data. So that's the like the local uh, part of the um, Amplify Data Store. And the cool thing, and this is I think what a lot of people will will use it for, is you can also uh, connect the data store or you can sync it to the cloud. And by syncing it to the cloud, you can also sync it across devices. So you can connect uh, from multiple um, clients. So, for example, you can use your iPad app. You can also use the I/O uh, like the iPhone app, and you will see um, after the synchronization is finished, you will see the same data. And the way this is implemented, um, it's it's all based on um, the GraphQL schema that you create in Amplify, and. What happens under the hood is that Amplify or the Amplify CLI, to be more precise, will deploy an AppSync backend and DynamoDB tables for you. So for each type that you would define in the GraphQL schema, you will get a DynamoDB table. And they will care or AWS Amplify will take care of all the data synchronization issues. So you can configure the strategy that is used for merging the items if there is a conflict. So, for example, if you change an item on your iPad while you're offline and also on your iPhone while you are um, offline. And if both the devices come online again, they're, if, I mean, if they modified the same piece of data, there needs to be some way to, to figure out what the latest state is. 
And there are multiple strategies that you can choose from. And there's also, um, and what I really like, the possibility to invoke a Lambda function to resolve the conflict in the data. So if, you, if you're not uh, happy with the, uh, the available uh, strategies for uh, merging the data, you can also uh, implement your own logic, um, which is nice. I think not a lot of people will use it, but uh, still uh, you could if, um, if there's a need for it. And by default, the, the merge is quite uh, clever So it because it knows about the, the schema of the data, so it can uh, take this into account and make a little bit uh, like better informed decisions about merging uh, two items together. Um, so as always, um, yeah. So do we have any questions, Andreas? Yeah, so my question is, did I get it correct that actually at the back end it is DynamoDB tables? And what um, Amplify Data Store brings along is um, the CLI and then actually an SDK that manages all the data synchronization. So, but the back end is still a DynamoDB table and um, a GraphQL API. Is that correct? Yes, and the back end is deployed into your AWS account. So, this is something that that you can see. So it's not really a Amplify API or something like this. It's, it's a plain AppSync backend and it's backed by DynamoDB tables, yes. Okay, and it's it's actually not a real service. It's more to, and more an SDK or more, yeah, an integration on the client side for um, DynamoDB and AppSync that has been there before. Yes, so that that's also what I would, uh, what I think it is, yeah. Um, so the cool thing is, um, it is uh, general available for browsers. Um, it is not general available for iOS and Android. So for iOS and Android, it's in preview. So if you are building a browser-based app, uh, you can start because it's also available in all regions. Um, so that's um, uh, good news. Um, so there's no need to talk about CloudFormation here because Amplify is managed with the Amplify CLI. And um, so that is that is working out of the box. Okay, perfect. So this was the second announcement of our top 10. So let me um, continue with um, the third announcement that we picked for our All You Need to Know About AWS uh, podcast episode. And this is um, HTTP APIs. This is a new service that AWS has announced. It's yeah, It lives under the API gateway umbrella, I would say. So it's a it's a service inside another service. And as the name implies, um, HTTP API allows us to build REST APIs, um, for example, with AWS Lambda. And I think it's it's actually designed uh, for the use with AWS Lambda. <clears throat> and it solves two problems um, that we had um, with the existing solution, which was the API gateway, which was very hard to configure. And it was also quite costly actually so um, what the HTTP APIs um, are solving is um, it's much easier to configure and it also costs less than um, API gateway <clears throat> so HTTP APIs come with a small but powerful set of features um, you can forward incoming requests to AWS Lambda or another HTTP endpoint but um, what the HTTP APIs are doing is they just forward your requests. So it's just a proxy um, that forwards uh, your request to Lambda or any other HTTP endpoint. Um, 
by default it supports um, cross-origin resource sharing and authentication and authorization um, with um, J JWT. Uh, so this is the, the mechanism that is built in for authentication and authorization. And you can use your own domain names as well as configure uh, TLS and SSL. So that's the small feature set. So I think it's a very powerful tool um, with with a limited feature set that's just yeah designed for this specific use case. You want to build a REST API backed by uh, Lambda functions. Um, so I think that's that's very helpful. You can configure um, the resources and the methods um, of your HTTP API, or you can just forward every incoming request to your Lambda function and do all the logic there. That's totally up to you. There is no request validation. There is no templating for mapping requests and responses. Um, that's uh, up to the API gateway, and HTTP APIs just, yeah, just cover that um, basic use case um, that we need. So um, important to know is that HTTP APIs are not generally available. They are in preview or in beta. It's not available in all regions, but, and that's the good news, uh, you can uh, already set it up with um, CloudFormation. And um, I want to say that there is one important feature missing, and this is um, throttling. So at the moment, there is no way to rate limit requests per client in any way. So that is typically a big issue if you build a backend and you're not able to to throttle the incoming requests. Yeah, so um, also something that I really like uh, because I uh, actually tried using HTTP APIs already using CloudFormation. So with API Gateway, uh, there, whenever you made a change to the configuration, you had to create a deployment. And with the new HTTP APIs, that's no longer needed because they can, so you can enable a feature called auto-deploy so whenever you make a change, it will automatically create a new deployment. So you do not have to uh, care about this anymore. So the bad news is that I was actually not able to get it uh, working. So I did some changes to the CloudFormation template. And the example blog post is, as far as I see, the permissions are not correct there. Like the example is wrong and, and it's not working for me. So I, I opened a support request and no, no response so far. So yeah, not sure if it's actually working or what I'm doing wrong because there are not a lot of examples and the examples that are there are wrong. So yeah, so that's kind of not as uh, good experience as I uh, hoped. But yeah, so let's see. Um, maybe this will be uh, fixed in the future. Okay, Andreas, um, I think, uh, I'm not sure if you mentioned it, but as far as I understood, uh, HTTP APIs, they are also cheaper compared to the API gateway. Is this correct? Yes, that's that's one purpose <laughs> why to build it. Because I think it's um, not very cost-effective to build a serverless applications with the API gateway, for example, also compared to the ALB integration for Lambda. So I think that is why the API gateway team had um, the pressure to build a product that uh, really is uh, competitive from a pricing perspective as well. Yeah, it's cheaper than uh, API Gateway. Okay, so let's continue with the next announcement. Um, and this is also about um, reducing costs. Um, and this time when you use step functions. 
So we have a new feature called Express Workflows. And the idea is that compared to what is now called the standard uh, type of step function, the Express type um, can scale up to over 100,000 executions per second. So this is really designed for high volume. And it also is, um, as I said, less expensive uh, than the uh, standard workflows. But if you use the express workflows, there will be some limitations compared to the standard workflows. The first is um, an execution uh, can only take up to five minutes. So with a like standard workflow, I think you have up to one year. Um, with the express workflow, you only have five minutes. So they are really designed for uh, workloads like ingesting data into your system or um, reacting to an HTTP, uh, like connecting it to HTTP APIs. Uh, so this is kind of the idea of the new Express workflows to so have high volume but short duration kind of executions. Um, then the other change is that um, you do not longer see the executions in the um, step functions API. So um, instead they appear in CloudWatch logs. So you configure the log group and then um, the execution data is, is sent to, to CloudWatch logs instead of um, a history that, that you can access over the step functions API. And I think the major change or the major difference is that um, we now have an at least once execution guarantee instead of exactly once what you get with the standard uh, type of step function. So that's, I think, a, a major change um, here. And also there are a few things that are not possible with the uh, Express workflows. Uh, first is um, there's basically no support for synchronous invocations of other services. And also the the callback kind of type uh, where you wait for um, task tokens, which is, for example, interesting if you wait for user input. So they are not supported. And also um, the activities are not supported. So this is a way to basically do some work on, for example, EC2 instances or uh, other um, systems. So I have a question here. So that does, does that mean that when they do not support job run or callback patterns, does that uh, mean that, for example, uh, also uh, calling AWS Fargate tasks is not supported? So when I start a job and then wait for it to execute, this is not supported or is that something else? Um, so you can start a Fargate task, but you cannot wait for it to finish. So basically the, the synchronous way is not available. Only the asynchronous way of invoking the Fargate task is available. So you cannot do things like um, making, like I think you wrote a blog post about how to run Fargate triggered by Chrome jobs. And so this is not possible with, with the Express workflows. Okay, so... At the moment, it's it's hard for me to imagine a scenario where I can use this express workflow, because um, so at, at least um, in the scenarios where I have been using step functions, I always this was the feature <laughs> that I wanted to use. Right, I wanted to be able to to do synchronous um, job runs and to do benefit from the exactly once guarantee. So at the moment, I cannot think of of a scenario, but there might be. Uh, one in the future when I when I think about it when building uh, an architecture. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. 
Yeah, so I think one use case that, that came to my mind, so we have this um, template to trigger the uh, CloudFormation drift detection mm -hmm. for all the stacks. So I think that's a use case where we could easily switch to the Express workflows and we would save some money. Um, but besides that, um, I think we rely on the um, exactly once guarantee. So in many places where we use them, so yeah, we cannot switch there. Or another thing that comes to my mind. So if the maximum execution duration is five minutes, so I can also run the same thing in a Lambda function, right? So what is... I, I actually, I'm <laughs> it's hard for me to imagine why I, I use that service, but... Yes. So, I mean, we will see um, uh, how useful it is um, in, in, in the real world. So the good news is that... So step function, uh, the state machines are defined in a, I think it's called Amazon state language or something like this. So it's a, like a JSON uh, with a certain schema. And Express workflows use exactly the same schema. So they uh, they didn't invent something new. So they, they reused what, what was already there. So it's really easy to migrate. It's just changing the type to Express, basically. Um And it is general available, it is available in all regions, and it is also um, supported by CloudFormation. So you can actually start uh, using it um, uh, right after the podcast, and, and um, there are no obstacles to wait for. Okay, so yes, I think it's, it's time for uh, the next interview, Andreas. Uh, what do you think? Yes, that would be great, Michael. So who is next? I talked to Anders, and he is a AWS community hero. So uh, he has some experience with AWS, and he also listened to all the keynotes in Las Vegas. So let's uh, see what he has to say. Well, it's uh, it's like hard to pick your favorite kid. Uh, there's been a lot of interesting announcements, but the most surprising one was, um, of course, Deep Composer. Uh, after that, I think I would kind of Look at the suite of uh, new announcements, which is all announcements related to Redshift and machine learning, because I think that was a kind of a broad, uh, broad suite of, of new stuff, which will have customer impacts. Lots of other cool announcements there, but uh, they are kind of narrow, so uh, they will impact some few customers, but ne not necessarily um, all of them. I think that's, I think that's the takeaway for the keynotes and the announcements this year. Even though, small disclaimer, there might be some news I haven't seen yet because they're popping up news all over the place. Okay, so I think there are uh, interesting uh, features that, that were mentioned. So one is um, the ML integration into Redshift, and it is also integrated into Aurora, um, the database engine. So basically what you can do here is you can make uh, or you can invoke um, machine learning capabilities from within your SQL query. So they added um, functions. So you can, for every row in the table, you can invoke, uh, for example, um, the um, like algorithm to detect the sentiment uh, or things like this. So it's really, um, I think it, it just got easier to integrate it. Before that, you had to, like, basically in your application logic, you had to uh, iterate over all the rows and then invoke the machine learning part uh, on your in your own application logic. Now you can do it directly from, from the database. Um, so which I think could, could really be interesting for, for some use cases. Um, so 
Andreas, um, and, um, Anders mentioned Deep Composer. So do you have any uh, idea or any uh, thoughts about what this Deep Composer thing is about? <laughs> yes, so, so Michael, I've, I've looked at this series and this is really a funny one. So Deep Composer um, is actually composing music. So um, what you need to provide as an input for the service is um, a small snippet Uh, for example, play uh, a, melo a melody with the piano, and then you upload that to Deep Composer, and it then uh, composes a song out of it. So with um, multiple instruments, and um, yeah, you then download um, the the song and uh, can can listen to it. So I listened to the examples <laughs> from the AWS blog posts. I'm not sure if it if I really like <laughs> what comes out of it, but at least it sounds like music and it sounds familiar. So I think it's interesting um, um, what they're doing there. I think it's um, mostly uh, it is um, yeah a showcase of what you can do with mis with machine learning. I, I don't I don't know if there is a real business use case um, to use it, um, but it's interesting actually. Yeah, so I think I, I also kind of compared to something that I uh, learned about, which was a way to, you basically inserted an image and then um, the algorithm converted it into something that looked like it if it was painted by Van Gogh. Um, so and this is kind of what Deep Composer does for music. But yeah, I think it's more like a way to get people using the machine learning algorithms, but I don't, I also don't really see some some like business impact here. So, okay, Andreas, so what is the next announcement that, that you want to share with us? So the next announcement that, I, uh, that, that, came, to my, um, or that came to my attention is um, inter-region peering with Transit Gateway. So let me describe uh, what this is about. So the AWS Transit Gateway was introduced last year at reInvent, and it actually makes it much easier to peer multiple networks with each other. So you just have the transit gateway that manages the connections between UVPCs in different accounts, different regions, uh, UVPN or direct connect connections. And actually with transit gateway, you can build the routing between all these networks and it makes it much easily, easier, especially for very large organizations, but also for small ones. So um, what what was missing so far is it was not possible to peer networks across different regions with Transit Gateway. We had that capability with VPC peering. So this was what we had before Transit Gateway. There we could um, peer networks, VPCs across regions, but it was not av available with Transit Gateway. And now an AWS announced that feature. So it's now possible to peer your VPCs uh, in different regions. At the moment, not all regions are supported. So it's supported in US East, North Virginia, uh, Ohio, Oregon, and in the EU, in Ireland, and in Frankfurt. So it's not, not available everywhere yet, but in the future, uh, it probably will be. So it allows you to peer all your VPCs with each other and, for example, use one VPN connection, one side-to-side -side VPN connection, or direct connect connection to your data center, for example. I think that's a... Small improvement, but very interesting improvement. And um, we have some customers that roll out their infrastructure globally in multiple regions. And it's a very interesting feature for them, for example, to build their control networks so that it's easier to 
yeah, to connect to instances uh, in all of those regions and stuff like that. So important to note it, um, the inter-region peering is general available. As I mentioned, it's not available in all regions. And as far as I, could, I can tell, it's also not uh, included in CloudFormation yet. Um, but yeah, still very interesting topic. Yeah, so this is also one of the interesting parts of CloudFormation or because I'm not quite sure how they handle all this cross-region stuff in CloudFormation. Mm -hmm. Because so far, the resources in CloudFormation are always deployed to the same region that the stack lives in. Um, but now we really have to, I mean, in, in many cases, we have to add configuration data in many regions. And there's not really a good solution for that in CloudFormation. So I'm kind of interested how they will uh, fix that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good point. <laughs> Probably they won't fix it, but yeah, let's see. Okay, so what's next, Michael? What else do you have on your list? Yeah, so the announcement that um, was kind of popping up uh, and I was curious about um, is AppConfig. And AppConfig is a way to, or is a, a new feature or a new service um, that allows us to deploy configuration data to environments in a controlled and safe manner. So what do I mean by controlled and safe? So first, you can uh, validate Uh, the configuration data. So if someone enters new configuration data, you can make sure that it is somehow valid. So you could, uh, or you can either use a JSON schema to uh, kind of make sure that the data is, is uh, or the input is, is, is valid. And by, with the JSON schema, you can do things like checking minimum and maximum uh, values of an integer, or you can also only define, okay, what values have to be there, Uh, and, and things like this, what the type of the data is. You can also invoke a Lambda function. So you can execute custom logic to validate um, the uh, the input. So for example, you can check if the... Uh, so for example, if you enter the name of an SSM parameter in your configuration data, you can then execute a Lambda function to really make sure that this SSM parameter has a value uh, or things like this. So... There's a lot of uh, possibilities. Um, by default, JSON schema is the easiest one, uh, but you can also do uh, whatever you like in the Lambda function. Um, and then if you uh, enter the new configuration data and if it's valid, um, you can roll it out into environments. And the rollout is done in a step-by-step -step manner. So you can configure uh, basically how long it should take. So for example, you want to have a 10-minute time window, and uh, um, every step in this time window, you want to roll out the changes to 20% of the uh, of the instances, for example. Um, and also, what you can do is you can configure um, that uh, app config uh, observe a CloudWatch alarm, and if the CloudWatch alarm fires within uh, or while the deployment of the new configuration is going on, um, it automatically um, rolls back the changes and the old, like the previous configuration is, is um, then um, rolled out again to the machines. So the configuration data itself is either stored on uh, as an SSM parameter or you can store it in an SSM document. So they invented a new type. So like documents can have different types. So there's a new type for configuration data 
And for me, like the obvious place to store a JSON file was S3, but that's not supported. So you can either be put it into an SSM parameter or into an SSM document. Um, so that's um, what you can do. So the biggest surprise, and this is also kind of uh, not really obvious from reading through the blog post, is that you really have to integrate AppConfig into your applications. So basically, you have to call um, the uh, get configuration API every now and then and pull AppConfig to see if the configuration data has changed. And in the blog post um, that uh, comes uh, together with this um, episode, I have some like Node.js code that basically pulls uh, AppConfig every 15 seconds for new configuration data. And the application also has to, you also have to have some mechanism inside your application to distribute the new configuration state internally. So most applications read configuration data when they start and then it's not able to change the configuration anymore. So your application really has to support this kind of way to change configuration data while the application is running. But still, I really like the um, the service. And uh, if for, for some cases, it could be really interesting. And so you could, for example, implement something like feature toggles with it. Um, you can also, uh, where you can like, change the configuration and, and set feature A to true or feature B to false and things like this. I mean, it's it's not, as I mentioned, feature toggles. It's not a service that, that supports feature toggles. It's a service that, that supports deploying configuration and you could use it to implement feature toggles. So, yeah, we will see. So it is general available. It's available in all regions um, and it's not supported by CloudFormation at the moment. So um, either way, I think we have to wait uh, a few more weeks or months until we see supporting cloud formation, then we can start figuring out um, what we can use it for. And there's also some like kind of confusion uh, because app config it it is actually called AWS app config, uh, but it's part of AWS Systems Manager. So I'm not really sure why it's part of AWS Systems Manager. Of course it is. <laughs> so the AWS SSM CLI does not cover app config. It's AWS app config. So there's a own service name for it. But it's, yeah, I'm not sure. So that's a little bit confusing. Um, and it's also, um, there is, uh, there are, so if you use app config, you will have to pay for it. So it's not free. So some parts of Systems Manager are free, but app config is not. So you have to uh, take this into account. Mm -hmm. Cool. Very interesting and your announcement. I totally missed that one. So glad you bring it up. Um, we'll have a look. Uh, I think it's, um, yeah, I'm I'm always a little bit concerned when using such a configuration management tool because usually I prefer building a deployment pipeline to do configuration changes. But I think for, for some use cases, as you mentioned, it could be very interesting. Um, yeah, so thanks, thanks for that. So the next... Um, thing that you definitely need to know about AWS reInvent is uh, some new features for the application load balancer that are quite interesting. Um, I want to dive into those a little bit deeper. So the first uh, new announcement is um, the application load balancer introduced uh, a new algorithm to distribute incoming requests among your targets. So far, the only available algorithm was round robin. So just, yeah, each request that comes in is distributed to another machine and it just goes um, through all the machines uh, and sending them the same amount of traffic. The problem with that approach is that sometimes you have requests that are more expensive 
than others. So let's think about they consume more CPU um, capacity or something like that. And what you will end up with if you use round robin, you will have some hot targets in your infrastructure because some of your targets will um, or might receive more expensive requests than others. And this results in um, you have to actually over-provision your targets, so your EC2 instances or or containers. And um, that means, yeah, you're, you're paying more than you actually need to because the, lo the load balancer is um, not really making sure that the workload on each machine uh, is distributed equally. And what the application load balancer announced is a new algorithm that we can use, and it's called least outstanding requests. Um, so which means the load balancer keeps track of the number of requests that uh, the targets are processing at the moment, and it sends new requests to those targets um, that have the shortest um, the shortest um, backlog of incoming requests. So by doing that, um, the workload gets distributed more uh, evenly in, in terms of the utilization of your targets. So not every target receives the same amount of requests, but still um, the utilization should be uh, more equal. And that allows you to then reduce the over-provisioning of your instances or containers. So I think that's a, a very yeah, powerful announcement. Um, this is general available. It's built into CloudFormation already, and it's available in all regions. So you can just start uh, using it by reconfiguring your load balance. Okay, so this was this was one announcement of the application load balancer, and the other other interesting announcement is that the application load balancer now supports um, weighted target groups. Um, that allows us to do uh, blue green deployments, for example, because what you can do is you can have two target groups behind uh, your application load balancer for the same rule, and you can then decide I want to, for example have 25% of my traffic go to this target group and 75% uh, going to another target group. And by doing that, you can switch your traffic from the old version of your application to the instances or containers running the new version of the um, your application. And the, the handy thing here is that the load balancer is doing um, the switching of the traffic between um, the target groups, uh, which means you don't have to worry about DNS caching um, and you can roll back very quickly to uh, the old target group with the old version, for example. So it's, yeah, it's, it's actually designed, I think, mostly for um, building deployments and that's a very handy uh, feature that is now available uh, on the application load balancer. Yeah, I agree. So I also saw that it is possible... So kind of what uh, the sticky session is um, uh, made for, it's also possible so to send the same client to the same target group, even so if it's weighted. So you can, so I think there's a second cookie introduced and as long as the client sends the, the cookie uh, to the load balancer, it will always make sure that once the, like the target group is selected, it will always uh, reach the same target yeah, group, which makes exactly, a lot yeah. of sense. That's also needed for, doing a deployment of a new version because you don't want to switch between new versions for each and every request. Yeah, absolutely. 
Okay, so let's listen to the um, the next and also the last interview. So this time I, I interviewed Torsten, so he's a community hero as well. So I think, yeah, the new Code Guru is a really cool service and I'm really looking forward to trying it out. And all the ML stuff is really interesting, so I'm really looking forward to you know, take a deep dive and see what this is all about and how this is working and helping users adopt machine learning. Okay, can you go a little bit into the details? What exactly is Code Guru? So, what it, so what's the benefit of using it? Can you explain it a little bit to our listeners? So, Code Guru seems to be a new service that helps you, yeah, look at um, pull requests to your code um, currently on CodeCommit and GitHub, and it analyzes using machine learning how the code is, how the code quality is, what the common mistakes are in the code, and provides comments on the pull requests with. Um, yeah, things to solve and to improve code quality. Okay, great. That sounds very awesome. And thank you very much for your comment, Austin. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, so I was really uh, happy about CodeGuru, the announcement of CodeGuru, until I figured out that it only works for Java at the moment. So <laughs> I cannot really use it. Um, but I think we will see support for other languages in the future. And as soon as I see some support for uh, JavaScript, I, I'm happy to use it. Uh, there's one one funny thing about CodeGuru. So you pay per line of code that the service is reviewing. Uh, so removing comments <laughs> from your code is actually a way to uh, reduce costs. <laughs> so not sure what to think about that. Um, okay. okay. So they they shouldn't charge for like lines with comments. So <laughs> that doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, okay. So the next announcement, um, or one of my favorites, um, and now we entered the container space. So um, there were lots of uh, announcements um, in the container space. And what I really like is a new feature of Fargate called spot pricing. So we received two amazing features to save money um, running Fargate workloads. The first feature was compute savings plans, where you can save... Um, up to 20 to 52 percent and depending on how long like if it's one or three year commitment and if you pay upfront or not so this was a great way to reduce costs and now with spot pricing you can save up to 69 percent compared to the on-demand rate so spot pricing is great if your workloads are interruption tolerant as aws calls it so this means um spot um, the spot market is basically AWS sells um, capacity, capacity that is not used at the moment, but whenever the capacity is requested, um, the spot uh, workloads will be terminated and you'll receive a termination notice two minutes before the actual termination happens. And the termination notice is available, so they will send the sick term signal to your process and uh, you will also receive um, an event or CloudWatch events. And then you could kind of react and and shut down um, your uh, application properly uh, and and clean up all the necessary stuff. So I think we now can use um, yeah savings plans to cover the baseline of of workloads that that are not happy if they are interrupted, and we can use Spot for all the rest. And by using the two features, Fargate becomes really a more uh, a more attractive option uh, in terms of um, the pricing because we get closer to the EC2 pricing model. 
Unfortunately, um, we have to wait for CloudFormation support. Um, it's general available. It's available in all the regions where Fargate is available. But yeah, um, CloudFormation support is missing uh, at the moment. And also um, something to um, mention here is that if you're interested into uh, how savings plans work, um, then listen to the previous podcast episode where we go into details um, and, and explain the new savings plans feature. Okay, Andreas. So I think it's uh, time for the last uh, uh, your last uh, announcement. Yeah. So I picked um, uh, a very uh, an, an announcement that I'm very happy about, and this is uh, Fargate for um, e- EKS. So the Kubernetes service um, offered by uh, Amazon Web Services, and um, so it was announced over a year ago <laughs> at reInvent uh, in Las Vegas last year. And finally, um, uh, Fargate is not only available for ECS, but also for AKS. So um, that is actually, um, I think, a very cool uh, thing because managing virtual machines to run containers on top of that um, is actually not a very good idea, in my opinion, because you're building another abstraction layer and you have to manage both layers um, when you do it your own running it on virtual machines and so with Fargate that's really a game changer and as you as you've seen with um, our book Rapid Docker on AWS for example we are very big fans of using Fargate because it really changes um, it really changes everything of course you just uh, use the containers the abstraction layer that you deploy um, to your cloud provider so Unfortunately, um, with Fargate available for uh, AKS, I don't have uh, a strong argument for for not using uh, AKS and favor uh, ECS. But but that's how it is, and I'm I'm very happy that the compute layer is is available. Um, so Fargate pricing is the same no matter if you orchestrate the containers with ECS or with AKS. So that's that's fine. The only difference is when you use uh, AKS, you pay for the cluster and this is around 144 dollars per month and as you know ecs um, clusters are are free of charge then the next question is how how does aws integrate fargate with aks and what you need um, to run your containers on fargate is you need to upgrade your kubernetes version to uh, 1.14 and the platform version 2.5. And by doing so, you then can create a so-called Fargate profile that tells the cluster to launch your pods on Fargate for a particular namespace. So you define, uh, for example, for the default namespace, launch the containers uh, on Fargate. And if you want to, you can also limit that and define specific tags um, that then decide, or that the cluster then uses to decide whether um, the the pod should launch on Fargate or um, by default on on the nodes in your cluster that you manage yourself. So yeah, I think Fargate for AKS is really uh, a, a big announcement. Um, it's general available, um, but it's not available in all regions yet. So um, it's um, at the moment available in in five regions. And at the moment, there is no support for cloud formation. Um, that's that's all about Fargate for AKS. So, Michael, what is your uh, last announcement that you picked 
for our top 10 announcements. Yeah, so the last announcement is really solving an issue that was uh, kind of driving me crazy for years. And we finally have a way to do proper auto-scaling for ECS clusters that are backed by EC2 instances. So we wrote a few blog posts and we also have like a, a CloudFormation template that tries to uh, do the best possible way of auto-scaling for ECS clusters. Um, but now with ECS cluster auto-scaling, basically or finally AWS integrates ECS with the auto-scaling group. So what happens uh, under the hood is basically ECS requests the auto-scaling group to scale up, um, which is very handy. So you, you don't have to add CloudWatch alarms or things like this. And if there's not enough capacity in the cluster, it will scale up the EC2 instances and still the task will be waiting to be scheduled. So before that, with all the ways that, that we could uh, create as users of AWS, they have also the, always the possibility of the cluster running out of capacity and then tasks were failing because they couldn't be scheduled. Um, so the new construct that is introduced is, is called um, a, um, a so-called capacity provider, and this is also kind of what is needed for uh, Fargate auto uh, Fargate spot to to work. And uh, and um, the problem with the new concept or the new resource uh, of the uh, capacity provider is that it's not in CloudFormation. Um, so we we really have to wait for CloudFormation support. But um, it is generally available and it's available in all regions. Um, so uh, as soon as we have CloudFormation support, we can we can try it out and we will also make sure that we update our our uh, open source template and use the new uh, auto-scaling capabilities and that ECS um, launched. Okay, so that's it. So our 10 um, um, announcements uh, or preferred or favorite announcements from um, this year's reInvent. If you like our podcast, um, we, uh, we'll, we really like uh, if you would share it uh, with a friend um, Please rate uh, or review our podcast um, wherever you listen to um, podcasts. So, for example, on Apple Podcasts um, uh, or on Spotify. Also, if you like to get updates about new episodes, um, make sure that you subscribe to our podcast. Um, so, this is free of charge. Um, and if you subscribe, you will automatically get new episodes um, as soon as they are um, released. Okay, uh, important as well is um, there is a blog post that covers the same topics um, than this podcast episode. So if you want to reread what we have been talking about, um, you will find the link in the show notes. And we also want to announce our online seminar, Rapid Docker on AWS. So this will be a four-week author-led online seminar by Michael and me. Uh, it includes videos, screencasts, and you will learn together with a small learning group um, about how to bring your application uh, dockerized uh, to AWS. We will have weekly question and answer sessions and um, this, this all, whole online seminar starts in February uh, next year. So reserve your seat now and you will find a link in the show notes. And I think that's it, Michael. That's all you need to know about AWS reInvent and speak to you in two weeks. Bye. Yes, see you soon. Bye.